It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scroven, along with my co-host, David Feldman. Hello, David. Hello there, Steve. And we also have, guess what? The man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello. Well, this is going to be on talk radio, this subject, by the expert in the country. That's right. Our guest today will be the editor and publisher of Talkers Magazine, Michael Harrison. He said that, quote, talk media is collectively the most accurate bellwether of American public opinion in the mass media today, end quote. We'll ask Mr. Harris about how talk radio is holding up against digital media like podcasts, plus whether the industry is still dominated by corporatist far-right voices or a progressive host making progress. Then Ralph will answer some more of your listener questions. And as always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, what is the state of talk radio and the media in the U.S.? David? Michael Harrison is the publisher and editor of Talkers and the host of the Michael Harrison interview. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Michael Harrison. Great to be here. Thank you, David. Thank you, Steve. And thank you, Ralph. I look forward to this conversation. Yeah, well, it's going to be a very special conversation because we would never have anybody so knowledgeable about talk radio. You've been putting out materials on it for decades. And the first question I think a lot of our listeners want you to discuss is why is so much commercial talk radio overwhelmingly dominated by conservative right-wing corporatists, Rush Limbaugh type, Sean Hannity, Levin, Savage, all these people, why are they so dominant? They probably have over 90% of the talk radio audience compared to liberal talk show hosts. Most people don't even know who they are. What's your explanation that, especially since all these stations, Michael, are using the public airways, as you know, belong to all of us? Well, you know, there is an exaggeration there, although it is true. There is a segment of the commercial news talk format on the commercial radio dial, not public radio, but commercial radio stations that do the format news talk that is dominated by conservatives. So to answer your first question, which indicates a lack of fairness, you have to judge radio as the entire radio dial, public radio, news talk radio, sports talk radio, shock jocks, although they're not shocking anymore, people that do talk shows in the mornings on classic rock stations. And that's basically the world that we cover. We cover talk media. So when, when people say, why is talk radio dominated by conservatives? I have to give that disclaimer, that explanation, that conservative news talk radio is dominated by conservatives. Just as if there were a football station. <laughs> why do they only talk football? Because they're a football station. But there are other stations that talk about baseball. And there are stations that play all kinds of music. But it's the nature of radio formatting to today. You target an audience and you super serve them. And in radio that deals with politics, the conservative element has been a very successful one. It's also one that has tremendous influence and it's also one that has a very high profile. So I just wanted to clarify that because it's not a matter of fairness or a matter that all of talk radio is dominated by conservatives. There are many, many progressives on radio. There are moderates, there are liberals, there's public radio. There are a number of public radio networks. You're on one of them. There's urban community talk radio targeted to the black community. And they tend to be more in line with the Democratic Party and progressive politics. 
And so that's, that's the answer to that. As to why conservatives have done so well in news talk radio, that's another story. And part of it is because the way commercial radio is programmed, the conservative audience is a much more targetable demographic, if you will, than a mass audience or people that call themselves liberal. For years, conservatives walked around feeling disenfranchised, feeling that the entire popular culture, media in general, Hollywood, newspapers, television, news networks, etc., were biased against them, marginalizing them to the right as radical, far right, you know, wing nuts, all of that. And so when Rush Limbaugh came around after the repeal of the Fairness Doctrine and, and people were able to talk openly about political opinion without worrying about you know, being censored or censured by the government for not being fair, they galvanized around it. That's one of the reasons. The other reason is, frankly, and you were such a part of the scene for years, Ralph, during the 90s, during the ascent of the modern era of talk radio led by Rush Limbaugh, the Republican Party was very, very supportive and reached out and involved with these talk show hosts, many of whom were more populist at that time than partisan, and they gained a foothold, whereas the Democrats didn't support talk radio that much. And only a handful of Democratic politicians showed up at the party. And I don't mean that to be a pun. And those are the basic reasons in answer to your question. I don't want to dominate the entire conversation with that because you could talk for hours about well, how that happened. Well, tell me the role of advertisers here. Obviously, commercial advertisers prefer conservative right-wing radio shows than having radio shows run by people like Jim Hightower who go after corporate crime, fraud, abuse, control of government, seizure of the commons, abusing consumers, all that. You see, that would scare advertisers. So that's got to be, since it's all a business, Michael. Yeah, you answered the question in your question. And frankly, you've been talking about this for years, and you're absolutely correct. For the most part, it's much easier to criticize the government than it is to criticize corporations, because corporations are the major force behind advertising dollars, and the government is not really an advertiser. So, and you've pointed this out. You pointed, I recently spoke to you on my podcast, and, and you made an excellent case for that as one of the broad strokes reasons why conservative works better on commercial talk radio, where their form of controversy and their form of criticism. Now, on the other hand, to balance it out, a point should be made that conservatives have had their problems with corporate America in as much as many of the big companies that advertise in the media in general have suddenly in the last five or 10 years have developed an aversion to controversy. And there are all these no buy lists, no buy put out by the agencies to tell their clients and their sponsors and stations, et cetera, not to support talk radio, many of whom are conservatives because they don't, they don't have an appetite anymore for controversy. Many of the big corporations want to be on non-controversial talk radio. So that's been a problem for the corporatist conservative talk radio companies. That's a more recent phenomenon, as you point out. But let me run some interesting vignettes by you, Michael. Jim Hightower, you know, he's a great popular speaker on the stump. He's humorous. You know, he has all the qualifications for talk radio. And ABC hired him to do a syndicated show across the country. And it ran for a number of months. Then they dropped him. And when he asked why, they said, you don't have the right voice. 
technically for talk radio. You don't have a good voice for talk radio. Hmm. I don't buy that. that? I I, I don't buy that. Jim Hightower is a great communicator. Jim Hightower is a very, very effective radio host, radio guest, speech maker, resource. I guess they had other reasons. He does have kind of a distinct voice, but there have been far more distinct, I won't use the word worse voices, I don't want to say that. There have been far more distinct voices on radio throughout history that have been very successful. I see that as, as an excuse. I, I don't buy that as a reason. Now, what are their reasons is your follow-up question. <laughs> Maybe he didn't get ratings. Maybe he stepped on toes. It could be any number of the things that you point out, but I agree with you. I don't buy the fact that it was his voice. That's ridiculous. The second vignette is Tom Hartman. Now, Tom Hartman is inexhaustible. I mean, like he has a three-hour radio show plus other media, and then he writes books. He's written, you know, 15 books. He's a real scholar. I mean, he has dug up stuff on American corporate history that university scholars have not dug up, and he's putting out one paperback after another that's titled The Hidden History of Monopolies, The Hidden History of Voting Suppression, and so forth. So he's extremely well-informed. I mean, there isn't a syndicated talk show host that comes close. And Mm. he knows how to talk on talk shows. As you know, it's a particular skill. And he's on three days, three hours a day. And his audience is much smaller. And he's been on for years. Much smaller than any of the top, you know, 10 right-wing talk show hosts. That's actually not true. His audience is one of the biggest audiences it's not as big as Limbaugh's was or some of the guys you know, yeah. that are right near the top, like Hannity and Mark Levin. But actually, Tom Hartman is an anomaly. Tom Hartman is ranked by talkers as one of the top 10 talk show hosts in America on commercial radio. He is also on some public radio stations. He's a hybrid, which makes him even more unusual and certainly more interesting. Yeah. But Hartman's the king of progressive talk radio. He may be in the top 10, but the gap between the top five and him is very substantial. Very The drop off after you get, you know, the top five or six people like Sean Hannity, Savage and others who have best selling books almost instantly because they have Mm -hmm. such a huge following. He doesn't have best selling books. I know his audience from personal experience, Michael. And I know the lack of feedback compared to being on some of these other shows. And uh, well, well, not, that it, I'm on the, not that I'm on the right wing shows, but, you know, after a while, you can sense in terms of feedback and the kind of addresses we give and emails and so forth. And he knows that. And he'd be the first to say that he is astonished why he doesn't have a larger audience. And he's not on that many stations either. Well, I mean, it is a free commercial marketplace, and it is what it is. <laughs> I yeah. mean, you know, when the Beatles were selling top records and Elvis Presley was, you know, why did other people, you know, have fewer sales? I mean, that, that's the nature of okay, It goes that's to true. your point. It goes to your point on advertising. If I was a corporation advertising, I probably wouldn't want to be on Hartman's show because he is one of the most fundamental critics of corporate power over our democracy in mm-hmm. modern American history, and they don't like it. Well, let's get real. It is a free enterprise system, a free marketplace. You can't have it both ways. If you bite the hand that feeds you, don't play in that game. If you're going to play in the commercial marketplace, don't be anti-commercial. 
This gets us to a very interesting transition. It may be a commercial marketplace, but it's using the public commons. The public airways, as you know so well, belongs to the people. The real estate agent is the Federal Communications Commission. Under the 1934 Act, they're supposed to advance the public interest, convenience, and necessity. Those are the legal phrases, which originally was seen as an affirmative, proactive role by the FCC, reflected in the Fairness Doctrine, the right of reply, etc. And those are all gone now under George Herbert Walker Bush and Reagan's influence. And yet, this is still the commons. This is public property. So you can say, well, we have cruise ships going up and down the Mississippi, and it's a marketplace. And, you know, some cruise ships are better than others, but they're going up and down on public property. So that raises a question that is very rarely treated by talk radio. And that is, should there be a carve-out? Should be a carve-out where people have their own audience network, which we drafted in legislative form and actually had a hearing years ago by then-Congressman Ed Markey and his major committee. And the representatives from the commercial media were at the table on one side, and I was at the table with some right-wing people, by the way, (laughs) who agreed with me. And we said, we should have a carve-out. Some of that public areas should go back to the people in a structured manner with studios, local, national, international. And it's more than public radio. Public radio is a corporation. It is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a rooted audience network where people begin becoming, you know, the the whole phrase financial literacy, where they become capable, skilled in radio, TV, at the community level, all the way up to the national level. And there are ways to finance it. And one way is to tax the use of the public airways by commercial radio stations. I've often written when Rush was alive, I'd write him a letter and I'd say, how does it feel to be a corporate welfare king? You and your station and company are using the public airways free and making a bundle of money. And you don't pay a cent 24-7. And someone who has an auto license for a few bucks pays more than the biggest TV station in New York. He really could never figure out what I was saying. I mean, to him, it was a prerogative, you know, he was entitled. And why do we give away our public airways? Do you have any views? Shouldn't we? I have a lot of, I have a lot of, I have a lot of views. I have a lot of views. And I answered this question with my first answer. My first answer is if we look at the public airwaves in the big picture and not judge it by the one slice of it that's conservative talk radio, you'll find that there's just about everything reflected on the public airwaves, including the aforementioned National Public Radio, Pacifica, American Public Radio, all of the public channels, those are on the public airwaves, college radio stations, black community radio stations, DJs that are really talk show hosts on music stations, most of whom are progressive. The numbers don't stack up that way. And somebody like Limbo would make the case that they are the alternative. But that's neither here nor there. Let me take it one step further, Ralph, because I I, emotionally, I sympathize with what you're saying. I just have a better grasp of the facts in terms of the big picture from a nonpartisan view. And, you know, I'm not a partisan. I could do what I do if I was partisan. The bigger picture is that it doesn't matter anymore. All the laws about the common grounds and the common airwaves and the public property were at a time when 
it was a scarce entity where the only way people could engage in mass communications was on the radio and television airwaves, you know, in terms of electronic media. Today, the electronic media, meaning radio and television, the kind we grew up with, is fighting for its life against a complete wide array of unregulated media, social media, Facebook, Twitter, websites, streaming, YouTube, podcasts. The stations that are carrying Rush Limbaugh's show, or, or did, are fighting for their lives, just like all the other stations at this point in time against exotic digital media that ultimately is going to win the battle. So that's the answer. Okay, let me answer you the answer. Number one, <laughs> all these examples you gave, Michael, are top-down. I'm interested in developing grassroots media communities that are bottom up. So basically they generate the stories that are never told. And as you know, local journalism is starving now and the local radio, except for a few NPR stations who take their local seriously, but local radio now is just, you know, syndicated stuff and commercial stuff. They don't cover town hall, town meetings and so on. And so I'm looking, see, you mentioned Pacifica, you mentioned NPR, you mentioned all these others. They're top down. I'm talking about a well-funded through attacks on the commercial use of the airwaves. And they're making billions of dollars and paying nothing for the use. We're the landlords, they're the tenants, there's no rent. You're repeating yourself, that, That's the difference. Yeah, let me finish. There are two ways I want to respond to enrich this dialogue. One is the bottom up, basically giving people with adequate technical resources, studios, etc., the opportunity to become media literate in a very significant newsworthy say. The news business full of taboos. You know that. Everybody knows mm -hmm. that. There are things that are never discussed. And the growth of our civilization is that what was never discussed years ago is now being discussed in the racial, sexual, gender areas. But in the corporate area, there are huge taboos. This gets me to the second point. You may be right on the proliferation. I mean, there are all kinds of outlets now, but I'm talking about the content. The content is not proliferating. The content that people should know about, should be alerted about, should be engaged about, should be able to initiate themselves in a kind of an initiatory media democracy. That is not for people would say, for example, I was once on a network and the guy lied about me. And I said, I want to rebut. It was a clear lie. It wasn't, you know, value judgment. And mm -hmm. I said, I want to rebut. And they said, well, what do you mean? you got plenty of things to rebut. You can go to Newark and rebut. Get on the station there. But it's not the same audience that heard the lie. I agree. So we're talking content now. And if we had more time, you and I could go through all kinds of subject matter. That is not discussed. And I'll pick one that you know a lot about, ESPN and the commercialization of sports, which now involves high school and college and NCAA and so-called amateur and professional. We have a group called leagueoffans.org, and it's run by a very savvy person who was a marketing person and got disgusted. He was a coach. He was an athlete. He's put out great books. And it's basically the dark side of sports, you know, the cover up on the concussions, the mm. substance misuse, the bullying, on and on and on. The lack of physical education in the schools, 
because it's mm-hmm. almost going extinct and the mm-hmm. increase in sedentary living and obesity among the young and on and on. He's written these wonderful books, which Robert Lipsight and others, I mean, really great figures in sports journalism have praised. He can't get on. He can't get on commercial radio. He can't get on commercial television. He can't get on anything. He's on some Canadian station and he has a blog and he's very, very relevant. Now, that's what I mean by content. You have all kinds of media, but when it comes to sports, it's dominated by commercial sports vested interests. And, wow. and I listen to ESPN radio. I mean, they can't count the number of hours they have. And they're constantly talking about contracts and about this and back and forth. They never talk about the fans, how they're being ripped off, how they're being excluded. You know, the whole scene is dismal. But I'm just picking this one out to give you an example. Not to mention, not to mention differentiation. Not to mention, if you're talking sports, the current fascination and rush to embrace sports gambling (laughs) on the sports media. Touche. (laughs) You imagine that? that? Yeah. (laughs) And now you're going to have college, you're going to have college athletes hiring agents and tax advisors. And look at all the envy and division with the other players on the same team because Mm -hmm. this quarterback is raking in money and they aren't. I love what you stand for, Ralph, and I support it from an emotional and a theoretical perspective. What you're talking about is basic intelligence, basic fairness, basic honesty, trying to do a good job, trying to help the public. Unfortunately, in the free market and free enterprise And when it becomes overly corporate, as I agree with you, it has, things are not always done with that in mind. And it's a matter of chasing the numbers, chasing the clicks, chasing the dollars. And that dominates the big time media. I want to go back. I know we're running short on time to the grassroots opportunity of local media, local podcasts. I think the death of local newspapers is a terrible problem for our democracy, but it's more a business issue. It's more a revenue issue. Once we figure out how to monetize all media in the digital era, there will be a rise of local news organizations again, but they won't be in paper. They'll be online. And to teach people how to go to studios and operate radio and television is teaching them how to get along in 1950, 60, and 70. We have to teach our children how to operate computers, how to do their own radio shows, TV shows from home. And grassroots media is going to have a resurgence. It already is from that direction. And, you know, you should be in some ways selfish about this. You're one of the few major radio presences talking about these things. You do talk about this. I have a question for you. Since you're providing this service, and I don't mean this to be nasty or to give you trouble, why isn't your show bigger out there than it is since you're providing the public with this necessary information? How come you don't have a bigger show or more listeners? How come Tom Hartman isn't on more stations? If they thought it could make money, they would. You know, Have you stopped and thought that maybe there's not as much of an appetite out there for this, even though perhaps there should be? Well, there are a lot of reasons for that. One is we don't do celebrities. I mean, when Britney Spears was in the news, even if we could have her on, we wouldn't have her on. So we don't do celebrities. And as you know, celebrities grab audiences. Mm -hmm. That's one reason. The second reason is it requires a lot of concentration to listen to this show. 
because it's not just sound bites. I mean, you can see just with our dialogue, right? I mean, you couldn't have a dialogue like that even on public radio. I mean, you're on radio, it's a matter of a few seconds before they interrupt you Correct. and ask another question or make a comment. And we let people talk in paragraphs. We let people reflect on the air. And the whole audience in America has been acculturated to fast, quick sound bites, almost sound barks, and very quick image changes, Tell me even about on it. TV news. Yeah, absolutely. See, so, so it's a bit of a Pavlovian problem here that we're fighting. It's like trying to get kids to eat nutritious food after they've had a huge diet of sugar, salt, and fat. They actually it's a cultural issue, taste. Ralph. It's a cultural yeah, yeah. issue, a complex yeah, cultural yeah. issue that goes beyond corporatism yeah. versus Tom Hartman. But on the other hand, the rulers that be, the powers mm -hmm. that be, they know what they're doing. I made a major speech on the need for the Clinton administration to make infectious disease and epidemics a top priority. This was on the occasion of the International Convention in Philadelphia of Infectious Disease Specialists. I was not invited to speak. I tried to call the White House and I got through and I said, you know, Clinton should ask to speak because we're concerned with tuberculosis, drug-resistant tuberculosis, and, and other things at that time, as well as what was coming in terms of avian flu from China and so forth. This was in the 1990s, late 1990s. And the press blacked it out completely, including talk radio. I mean, it was well advanced. And what we're seeing here is something that often isn't addressed. I used to get on major talk radio when we had... Williams in Boston and Jackson in L.A., you know all these people. You remember, they had large regional audiences, Chicago, KMOX, and St. Louis. And they're all gone now. They're all either mm -hmm. replaced by local sweetheart advertising people, or more likely, they're replaced by the big syndicates. They're replaced by Sean Hannity and others. Mm -hmm. And they're all gone. Mm -hmm. And of course, all this important thing work we're doing here, and there's there's hardly a major problem and injustice in this country that we have not anticipated in our work over 50 years and mm -hmm. documented and pleaded. And so what I'm saying is things are getting worse regardless of the proliferation of news and media outlets. We're getting, and I'm saying all our citizen groups that got through the major legislation for consumer protection auto safety environment in the early 1970s, the Air Pollution Control Act, the Water Pollution Control Act, the Product Safety Act, the Environmental Protection Agency, the Occupational Safety. We couldn't have done this without the media. And now, if we were trying to do this now, we, could, we wouldn't even get a congressional hearing, Michael. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to get even Senator Blumenthal, who's mm -hmm. the chief supporter of tougher corporate crime enforcement, he has a subcommittee on the Constitution, and he's going to have trouble with his chair, Durbin, in having corporate crime hearings. And we're into a corporate crime wave. If anybody doesn't believe it, just read the Wall Street mm. Journal. Look at yeah. 60 Minutes, Washington Post. You know all I, that. I, I so suspect things are, I su things are getting yeah. worse. Well, I How do you address? Well, I, I think part of it is I think these guys are afraid of you specifically. I think you're seeing a lot of this through your own experience and your own eyes, and you don't realize 
how scary you are to some of these establishment figures, whether they're left or right, because they're all corporate. And your attack is on their, you know, the mother's milk <laughs> of, their, of their industry. So obvious, and you ask tough questions. So obviously they avoid you. They also avoid a lot of the commercial broadcasters too, including the conservatives. Conservatives complain to me that they have trouble having access as well. So this is a broader problem. And again, you're doing, you know, you're doing, if you pardon the expression, God's work being out there in an area where it's needed, obviously. So I don't want to say, you know, they don't like you or, or they're afraid of you in a pejorative way. It's a tribute to what you're doing. But it's lonely on the frontier, Ralph. It isn't easy turning societies around. It isn't easy questioning and holding power's feet to the fire as you do. It's a battle that will always go on as long as we have this human DNA. This is the way people have been from the beginning of time. I mean, talking to you on this, on this subject intelligently takes us into deep philosophy and theory. And, and again, my, the broadcaster of me is saying, shut up, Harrison, we're coming to the end of the time that you were invited for. But you're taking it down a deep rabbit hole. This is about our culture. This is about human nature. This is about free enterprise. How the hell do you run a country with so many people and so many interests in it and keep everybody happy? I mean, had you been elected president, did you ever stop and think what a headache you would have had trying to make a lot of these visions that you have come true in the real world of Congress, the Supreme Court, and all the politics and corporate interests out there? You would have said, take me outside and, you know, relieve me of this. It's, have you ever think about that, Ralph? Well, the bully pulpit is a different dimension in the White House. There's huge leverage to communicate and mobilize the people against the vested interest. But I want your insight on this. Mm -hmm. We used to get on the Phil Donahue show on food safety, on auto safety, on environment, on labor. He would have the first advocates for women's liberation, the first advocates for gay rights, the first advocates for abolishing nuclear weapons. He had 10 million viewers. And in between, of course, he had a majority of entertainment shows to keep the audience. And he was a great advocate of the First Amendment. I consider him the greatest practitioner and enabler of the First Amendment on controversial issues in the 20th century. Then I would get on Merv Griffin. I would mm -hmm. get on Mike Douglas. I would get on all these shows, and I wasn't the only one. They're yeah. all gone now. I mean, afternoon television is rancid. They have bouncers. They have, you know, people accusing yes, yes, each other yes, of cheating. Yes. Yeah, you know we, what it's all our, about. Our culture, and, and that's is, gone. Getting, our and, culture is getting yeah, crappier and crappier. If I yeah. could use that now, term. When I asked Phil Donahue, when I asked Phil Donahue that in 1996, I said, it's declining. The citizen groups who, who helped build this country's sense of justice and institutions of justice are being shut out, Phil. He said, we're in a culture of decay. Just what you said, Michael. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so I want yeah. your insight on why are things getting worse when we have an internet and we still have the right to demonstrate and petition and march why why i guess this is a greater question that i have to it's above my pay grade <laughs> ralph these are questions that go all the way back to sodom and gomorrah to the flood <laughs> when god said people are corrupt let's get rid of them and start over why does society in good times tend to go toward corruption and it takes trouble and bad times wars pestilence and death for people to say, okay, maybe it's time to reevaluate our culture and our principles. This is the great human dilemma. So yeah, I do agree. I said it. 
our culture is in some type of decay. And do you propose making it against the law to be frivolous and stupid? Is that what you're saying? Should the government step in and tell broadcasters in a free marketplace what they must do? Is government regulation and government judgment over quality and fairness the answer to corporate misuse of power? I don't think so. I think it's even more dangerous. We're stuck between a rock I, and I, a I, no, hard no. place. I, I've always supported the fairness doctrines. That that's not much regulation at all. That just doesn't work. It, it's proved, views, it proved, but it proved, it proved not to work. Don't tell Sean Hannity that. That's what. <laughs> that's what. That was a great release for Sean and Rush and all. But there's an alternative, and that is just look. Right now, the commercial media controls that part of the spectrum 24/7, seven days a week. They decide who says what, who doesn't mm -hmm. say what, and they get it free, and they don't pay any rent to we the people. I'm mm -hmm. saying. All right, never mind government censorship. We're not talking about that. Just give part of the hours per day back to an audience network and give it good resource by charging rent. You see, I think, you know, the usual description of the people is they're totally distracted by their family burdens, worries, and the rest of the time is entertainment. And you're not going to get any civic energy out of most of the people. The other way to look at the people is I think a more compassionate way is that most of them have given up on themselves when it comes to counting and engaging a vigorous, productive democracy and society. I think deep inside them, they feel they don't count. And that's why a lot of them don't vote. They don't count. Nobody's listening to them. Why bother? I'll pursue my hobby. I'll look at my favorite program. I'll play with the kids. I'll go to work and I'll support them. Don't bother me. Mm. They've given up on themselves. And of They're course, the educational system, yeah, yeah, the educational system doesn't help because they don't teach civic skills and civic participation Bingo. in elementary and high school. Bingo. Very important point. We should go back to teaching civics, what we used to call when I was a kid, social studies, how a bill becomes a law. Of course, it was very naive. I grew up thinking I could write a letter to my congressman with a great idea. And if he or she liked it, they'd introduce it to the house and it might become a law. <laughs> that, I, that's what I believed as a kid. I later learned that the chances of that happening are somewhere between zero and none. But the people have to have a certain level of responsibility to be informed. But the reason we have representative government is because people cannot be expected to make it their business to be as informed as necessary when they're busy taking care of their children and keeping the house going and maintaining their relationships and pleasing their boss and fighting traffic and dealing with pandemics and all the stuff that it takes to be a reasonably reputable yeah. human being. There is the a minimum have sold that level. Of, That's the point. Yeah. There's a minimum level of activity people have to have so that their representatives yes. heed them, listen to yes. them. Yes, yes. Realize where they're coming from. That's what I'm saying. Well, Obviously, you and I sound more, we sound, we sound more like preachers than we do teachers or government we're, officials. We're, we're, we're reachers. Preaching. We're reachers. Okay. Uh, we're reachers. We if reach you, out, if this show, if <laughs> Let, this let me show, give you an example. This is a very good show. Let me give you an example. Because I'm into trends, decaying trends, reaffirming, mm -hmm. rebuilding, renewing trends. When I was in college, I used to read the congressional record. And also I read it in, in high school. I found it piled up in a closet in the high school library. Mm. And, I, and then I, I figured out, you know, I, I don't want to start 
digging in a library. I want a subscription. So I wrote to my senator, and the senator said, you have a free subscription. You're going to get the congressional record every day they're in session. And he wrote me a personal letter. In those days, senators had a quota. They could have a couple hundred free subscriptions or whatever to people who wanted it and needed it, in addition to the libraries. All the libraries got it. Well, here's the interesting story. I used to correspond as a nobody with senators. I would correspond with Senator Prescott Bush, who, Mm. as you know, is the grandfather of George W. Bush and the father of George Herbert Walker Bush. He was a Connecticut senator. He would respond to me. I would say, can you get me the hearings on the Senate Monopoly, Anti-Monopoly Committee on the auto dealers and the auto companies twisting arms with their franchise agreements? Bingo. I would get the hearings. I would get the hearings. I would talk to my member of Congress. I would be able to get response. Now, listen to this, Michael, to show the decay. We have a letter from one of our listeners that just came in, and it's by Fred Gliana. The subject, lack of response from my representatives in Congress. Here's what he said. Quote, I have mailed more than 25 letters since May without yet receiving even one response. My letters have gone to House and Senate members, the Attorney General, the President, and Vice President. I write concise and polite letters. These days, the public servants do not bother even with form letters. This is a deplorable situation. Any hints to fix it? This is a widespread subject. I can't get NPR to even talk about it. It is a problem. You're citing examples of a situation that's uh, most troubling. It is a problem. And the the answer lies in a long-term solution of changing our priorities educationally and in terms of our national conversation in terms of principles. But in practice, that senator, those congressmen know that writing a letter and getting involved with an individual constituent on that level because they're intelligent, et cetera, does not have as much weight and they're getting reelected as snuggling up with big donors or power brokers. And they were at a period in politics where that's all that matters. Their consultants told them that the entire paradigm is different, or maybe it always was this way. And you were a 15-year-old or an 18-year-old or a 20-year-old who is such an anomaly that you grew up to be a five-time presidential candidate, a prolific author, a radio broadcaster, and a guy that wrote a book that's considered one of the greatest pieces of journalism of all time that went on to turn around the entire automobile industry. How many kids have that potential? You're viewing the, the world through your eyes. You are Ralph Nader. You were Ralph Nader probably when you were 10. You were probably asking questions like that. The average kid doesn't think about getting the congressional record. They, they just aren't that way. Well, and I don't know why you, you I'm telling on... you that. Maybe because I care about you personally, because what you're saying appeals to me emotionally. I think that you're absolutely well, right. I just don't want you to be too we're frustrated. Ta- <laughs> we're, ta- we're, we're talking with Michael Harrison of Talkers, and we're going to talk a bit about Talkers in a minute. But you see, what I'm pointing out is even the pretense of courtesy by mm-hmm. corporation, public relations, customer service, members of Congress, state legislatures, even the pretense of courtesy that is just acknowledging receipt has been tossed out the window. That's how coarse the political and corporate culture have become. But Absolutely. The, the other point is this. The other point is this. 
most leaders are members of a tiny number of people in their category. So we don't need large numbers of people reading the congressional record. We need members of Congress who have the dignity, have the foresight to know that when a youngster writes them, other than please congratulate me, I just graduated from high school or I got my Eagle Scout ceremony. Right, right, right. That could be a great inspiration, and it has been throughout history. And they're foregoing they're foregoing that opportunity, and they don't even have to pay postage. They have the franking privilege. So it's not just me. It's just people. They're always 1% of the people who are going to pick up the fight for justice in a more permanent, full-time way. And those people should be responded to. And they're the people who begin talking to other people who are more withdrawn. And the more withdrawn, talk to other people who are totally withdrawn from civic life and engagement. And that's all very healthy. We can't all spend our time worrying about, you know, nuclear arms control. But Mm -hmm. we can have small numbers of people generate and put forces in motion, both in terms of our political institutions, corporate institutions, local government, you name it. And I'm saying things are getting a lot worse while we're sitting around congratulating ourselves about the new information age and the new Internet age. And here we come with augmented reality from Facebook with goggles. It's going nuts. We've got to get down to earth. Yes, we do. And old timers like us have to be very careful not to sound like we're stuck in the past. That's a very fine line. Also, it's a generational issue. When you talk about things used to be better and they're worse today, you run into ageism, you run into that as well. There are a lot of things that have to be overcome to keep us from going down a dark path. Anybody who knows history knows that progress isn't always in in a certain direction. Sometimes we go backwards and we have to go around and we have to circle back and we have to, you know, we're not always moving forward in terms of forward meaning better. So are we heading into a dark age? I certainly hope not, but there's a case to be made that we might be. And if that's the point, then what you're doing and what I'm saying here and my putting you on my platform and you putting me on yours is a very healthy thing. But it's a lot bigger, Ralph, than whether people can get on a talk radio show, because my major point that I'm trying to make here for the reason I was invited is that talk radio and radio in general is facing tremendous challenges in this new digital era, which is unregulated largely, not completely. And that's a whole other issue but is, you know, relatively unregulated and where there's a tremendous amount of chatter. I was going to say before, if this radio program had a YouTube version, if you had a YouTube version of this radio program, I think you'd be shocked at how many more listeners and fans you would have. You make very important points, very, very sagacious points, Michael. And I'm not just reflecting your white beard of a prophet. You make very, you, you make very, very important points. What you just did, especially the point on ageism, especially mm-hmm. the point on the young thinking, that, you know, that this is old-fashioned stuff. It's out of date. Forget mm-hmm. it. We're the future. We need to put an arm around the shoulder of the young, and we need to talk with them, not to them. We need to talk with them and not give up on them. A lot of parents have found that their children and grandchildren have distanced themselves because the parents are not viewed as technologically. Exactly. There's a huge, I mean, I consider the real immigration issue that we have in this country right now is not immigrants from Mexico or foreign countries. It's the immigrants from the 20th century. Those of us who come from the 20th century, time being a place in space, 
are facing the same problems that other immigrants come to a new land. The natives talk a different language. The natives are more nimble, more facile in dealing with the technology and the, the cultural apparatus. And you say we put our arms around the shoulders of the young and tell them that we're not giving up on them. The real issue is the young should stop giving up on the older people. That's where the resource is. There's a tremendous wisdom to be attained by the older generation, which is not one of the biggest negative byproducts of today's corporate culture, and it affects talk radio because I see it directly, is they don't want to advertise on media that gets to the baby boomers. They don't want to spend their money reaching older people. They're obsessed with millennials, and now they're becoming obsessed with Generation Z. For some strange reason, they think that's where the money is, that's where the future is, when in fact, the boomers are the most active, informed, and lucrative audience to tap into. They don't. So the ageism problem based upon the acceleration of communications technology in the 21st century is also an impediment to the principles that you're discussing. So well said. So well said. I mean, the baby boomers buy a lot of things, too. It's inexplicable. Yes. It's not like they're yes. phasing out their consumer purchases. I mean, even ARP is falling prey to this. If you look at the covers of ARP magazine, it goes out to 19 million people. It's like, you know, people in their 50s who look 40s. And there are all kinds <laughs> of people in their 70s. Yeah, in their 70s, 80s, 90s. They're very active. And I keep telling the editors of the magazine, I said, look, your readers are not getting any younger. you got to show them how people 10, 20 years older are leading very active, productive lives. Put them on the cover. And I gave them all kinds of names, and they wouldn't put them on the cover. Uh, and they just, I think, put Bruce Springsteen on the cover recently. But you're right. Ageism is a huge taboo. It's a huge subject. And I hope we can all begin talking more about it. Let's talk about talkers. Tell us about talkers. How did it get started? What are you doing with it? Talkers is a trade publication. It started out as the trade publication for talk radio, and now it's a trade publication for talk media because talk radio doesn't exist in a vacuum. Talk radio is part of a, a web of podcasting, online shows, satellite radio, and cable news talk television, which was inspired in its growth by the success of talk radio. So Talkers is a trade publication, very much like Billboard magazine is in the music business or Variety is in the film and show business business, women's wear daily in the garment industry. I started it in 1990. My background is as a broadcaster and as a trade journalist. I have careers on both levels. I had a very colorful career in, in both. And in 1990, I saw the coming of talk radio as a major, major industry within the radio industry, and I started Talkers as a newspaper, and it evolved into a magazine, and now it's an online brand. We do annual conventions. You've attended a number of them in the past. For, we're 31 years old, and we've never thrived. We've always been among the most successful trade magazines in the radio business, currently, we're, we might be the, the biggest or certainly one of the one or two biggest trade magazines that cover radio and its related media. When I say we've never thrived, nobody's making millions of dollars here. It's a labor of love and dedication to the principle that the media is important and that radio is important. Very similar to your point of view. I'm just maybe a little bit more accustomed to it or 
you know, uh, resigned to it <laughs> than you are, but I, I'm certainly inspired. Where, where do you work out of? That's what Talkers work is. It's at talkers.com. It's not a fan magazine. It's not really geared to listeners, but those listeners and, and audience members of talk media that really love it find it behind the where scenes. Where do you work out interesting, of, But it's, it's, not a, it's not a fan publication. It's for professionals in the business. But fans should read it because they can benefit from it. We've been speaking with Michael Harrison, publisher and editor of Talkers. Michael, this is a great conversation. I think our listeners would agree, and we want to continue it because it deals with very important issues affecting our country and the world that are not usually candidly discussed. Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much, Ralph. It's been a pleasure and an honor to be on the program with you engaged in such an exciting conversation. Please keep up the good work. There's certainly a need for it. Thank you, Michael, many times. We've been speaking with Michael Harrison. We will link to his work at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Let's take a quick break to check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Monkheiber. When we come back, Ralph is going to answer some more of your questions. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your corporate crime reporter morning minute for Friday, August 6, 2021. I'm Russell Monkheiber. Three school teachers in the state of Washington who sued the chemical company Monsanto over exposure to materials in fluorescent lights have been awarded. $185 million. That's according to a report in The Guardian. The teachers who worked at the Sky Valley Education Center in Monroe, Washington, said they suffered brain damage from exposure to PCBs in the fluorescent lighting at the school. This was the first of 22 trials involving teachers, parents, and students who spent time at the Sky Valley Education Center. A 2019 Associated Press investigation found that millions of fluorescent light ballasts containing PCBs probably remain in schools and daycare centers across the United States four decades after the chemicals were banned over concerns that they could cause cancer and other illnesses. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman and Ralph. Let's do some listener questions. This one comes from a Teresa Selman, who's a Congress Club member. And she says, good afternoon, Congress Club team. I'm reaching out to give notification that I have emailed both of my senators, Ted Cruz and John Cornyn. I've been emailing them consistently from January 2021, every two to three months with letters you've provided on the Radio Hour website. I want to let you know that I have not received a single response from them regarding my emails. Therefore, I will take the next suggested step by Ralph and print the letters to post. Please feel free to contact me anytime if I can be of assistance. That's from Teresa. What do you have to say to that, Ralph? Well, what I would also suggest is send your letters to the local office of Cornyn and Cruz. They tend to be a little bit more sensitive. Tell them what you're doing. You're spreading the word on the Internet. And send it to the Democratic Party in Texas, especially Beto O'Rourke, who is going to challenge Ted Cruz, I'm sure, in another four years. All right. Thank you for that question, Teresa. This question comes to us from Irwin. Dear Ralph, I'm finding it difficult to reconcile my dependence on your show, amongst others, to provide balance and insight into the machinations of the US of A, foreign and domestic, your position of free speech, et cetera, with your all but silence on the case of Julian Assange. I have written you before to no avail, response or reply. I'm not looking for a mention, but rather for you to elaborate your position on this rather urgent issue, for it is too late for him once he is extradited. Well, Erwin, you can't have read or heard everything I've said. I have 
spoken out about Julian Assange and Edward Snowden and others, not only on free speech grounds, Irwin, but on grounds that they have released information documenting crimes of the government and other institutions. So it's rather absurd that people are interested in the U.S. government in indicting Julian Assange, who now is in a jail in England after being under, in effect, house arrest at the Ecuadorian embassy in London, not by Ecuador, but by the police who were standing outside ready to nab him if he left the embassy, for disclosing evidence and videos of crimes, like knowingly killing innocent civilians in Iraq by U.S. Air Force. These are the disclosures of serious crimes. They should be given awards, not prosecuted. So you've written about this in your columns? Well, a long time ago. I mean, you know, I haven't written recently. When right. he was on Democracy Now!, for example, which he's not on anymore, I can't give you a site or evidence, but I've said the same thing about Snowden. It's absurd. You know, <laughs> These people are exercising the rights under principles of democracy to reveal and disclose crimes. I mean, there are some federal statutes that, that require government employees to disclose evidence of crimes. They get awards for that. Outside citizens don't get awards. They get harangued, prosecuted, exiled. They should be given prizes. It's interesting to me, Ralph, that there would be people who will uh, lionize Daniel Ellsberg for revealing the Pentagon Papers. And Ellsberg himself says Snowden and Assange are doing important work. But these same people who lionize Ellsberg say, well, that's different. It was different what he did. Was it really different what he did? It was bolder and more important than what he did. He basically released a government report that was full of obvious descriptions that David Halberstam and others in the New York Times reported from Vietnam. So it wasn't like inner sequence. What Snowden and Assange released were evidence of crimes, like snooping on every American by the NSA in violation of the Fourth Amendment. That's a pretty serious crime. Translated into a statute called the FISA statute, it has a five-year jail term as a first-class penalty. That's a pretty serious crime because Assange and Snowden got to the core of the national security state, of the corporate state, of the systemic lawlessness, of the violation of our constitutions, federal statutes, and international treaties. They are pilloried because what they released went to the core of the fascistic systems that have been in place for so long and unchallenged by Congress and the courts. I happen to have a short conversation with my congressman, Adam Schiff. This is probably about five or seven years ago with a couple of friends. And we brought up the subject of Edward Snowden. And I think Schiff is on the Intelligence Committee. And he sort of nodded as we sort of lauded Snowden as a hero. And his only response was, I think it would be best if Snowden stayed in Russia, which if I'm reading into it, which I am, he kind of deep down knows that Snowden is right. But from practical reasons, his advice is it wouldn't go well if you came back. The courage of Mike Ravel, I right. said sarcastically. That's the other problem, right, Ralph, that we don't have any politicians like Mike Ravel. That's right. Mike Ravel is the only senator who sat there at 
the committee level, all the other senators were not present, and he read out loud page after page after page of the Pentagon Papers, protected by the speech and debate clause of the Constitution, so he could not be censored or prosecuted. Thank you for your questions. I want to thank our guest again, Michael Harrison, for those listening on the radio. That's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up. A transcript of the show will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour website soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, it's free. Go to Nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to CorporateCrimereporter.com. For a copy of the day, the Rats Veto Congress, go to RatsForWarnCongress.org and also check out the Ralph Nader and Family Cookbook, Classic Recipes from Lebanon and Beyond. We will link to both of those on RalphNaderRadioHour.com. Ralph wants you to join the Congress Club. Go to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour website and in the top right margin, click on the button labeled Congress Club to get more information. We've also added a button right below with specific instructions about what to include in your letters to Congress. The producers of the Raffinator Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager is Stephen Wendt. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. When you read The Day the Rats Vetoed Congress, my fable, but a lot of realism, you'll want to join the Congress Club. Listen to-